You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning first to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, and we'll read the verses 17 through 36. You see in the NIV, the heading there is blessings and woes. Of course, that's all in the context of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. So Luke 6, verse 17, he, that's the Lord Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Then if you would, turn to the Old Testament, to our text for this morning, Amos chapter 6. You see that same word at the beginning of our text, woe, a covenant curse. Amos chapter 6, we'll read the verses 1 through 7. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come, go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. 
You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Those are the words of Sir Edmund Burke, what he said in response to the atrocities that were being carried out in France during the French Revolution. All that's necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Well, it also describes the situation in our text this morning as the good men, or at least the people of God, who had such a great privilege and calling in this world, who were supposed to be good, were doing nothing. Well, they weren't doing nothing exactly. We can read about it in their text. They were spending their time reclining on their luxurious couches. They were dining on the finest foods and they were plucking away at their guitars or their lyres in a constant state of intoxication. Not doing nothing, but living in pursuit of their own gratuitous, self-secure, self-gratifying life. But in regards to their calling, what they were actually supposed to be doing in this world, they were doing nothing. Their lives, in many ways, were a complete waste. And so, Amos tells them, the covenant God isn't going to keep putting up with you and putting up with this life, so-called life that you live. And he says in our text, You will be cursed. That's the meaning of a woe. You will be cursed. While the text before us this morning has very strong words of judgment to the people of God. Very strong words of judgment to a very wicked people. But while we read these words, we ourselves need to consider our own privileged place in this world. What great blessings haven't we received from God? And also we need to consider our own calling from the Lord and ask whether we're working that out to His glory. And finally, we need to put our question the question to ourselves. What's going to be our response to this message of woe and judgment before us this morning? And so I preach to you this morning under this theme that Amos pronounces a covenant curse against the self-secure people of God. Amos pronounces a covenant curse against the self-secure people of God. And we'll see that first with the great privilege of the people of God, and second, the great calling of the people of God. Third, what's going to be the great response of the people of God? as they hear this message 
of covenant curse, of judgment from the prophet Amos. So first then, the great privilege of the people of God. We should notice that in our text this morning, Amos has been, as you might recall, in this prophecy addressing the people of Israel primarily. But in our text this morning, he addresses both the people of Judah, you who are complacent in Zion, that's Jerusalem, in the region of Judah, and the people in Israel, you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. So he's addressing both Judah and Israel. Zion was the capital of Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of, sorry, Zion was the capital of Judah. Samaria was the capital of Israel. But even more, among both those people, Judah and Israel, he is addressing the elite. As he says there, the the foremost people, the notable men of the foremost nation. These men were the cream of the crop. They were the leaders, the religious leaders, the intellectual leaders, the political leaders. And they had been given by God the best situation in life. Of course, Amos realizes the privileged position that the people of God had, and that's what he highlights in our text the special status of the people of God. Because the people of Israel and the people of Judah did have a very special status in this world. They were the people of God. They were, and no one else had that title. They were none other than the people that God had called out of Egypt, that God had called out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and Abraham, that He had, out of all the nations of the earth, called to be His very own. As Moses tells them at one point, they weren't among the the greatest nations of the world. There wasn't anything attractive in themselves that made God call them. But he did anyways. In fact, the people of Israel had begun in the most unlikely circumstances. The the late birth, the late life birth of Isaac to a hundred year old father and a ninety year old mother. And yet, through many years and many falls and faults and stops and starts along the way, God had made them His very own and He had built them up into a nation and He had given them the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And He had established them there as His own people in a blessed relationship with Himself. So they had a very special status. They were the privileged people of the Almighty God in heaven. They also had a very special history. Amos knows about that too, and he signals it with a couple of words here in our text. He he brings up the word Zion. Zion, what a rich and full name. Zion. What was Zion but God's own house on earth? What was Zion but where God lived with His people in the temple? It was where the throne of God sat on this world. It was the center point of true worship in Israel, and it was the center point of true worship in the entire world. Zion. And also, we read about Samaria. While Samaria is in a very different category than Zion, but Samaria had, in the world of that time, achieved great status. King Omri had built up Samaria as the capital of his kingdom, and 
He had had a rich and successful kingdom. And so Samaria became known all throughout the world around Israel as a great city. And then that had been continued on by Ahab. And now under the reign of King Jeroboam II, that city was again undergoing a resurgence. It was a great city in the ancient Near Eastern world. So they were a privileged people. They had a a great history. And they had also received special gifts from the Lord. They had received many blessings. Of course, along with that rich status and that rich history comes the blessings that the Israelites and the Judahites were enjoying. Think of the wealth and power that Samaria had in the world at that time. Think of the military might that Jeroboam too had, one of the great military leaders of the time in that area. Think of the prosperity that the people had that Amos was addressing. They have beds inlaid with ivory. They have expensive meats that they eat every night. Meats that most Israelites would have only enjoyed two or three times a year. They're eating it every day. They had recreational time for musical pursuits. They were very rich. Very blessed. Well, how can we talk about this special status, the special history, the special gifts enjoyed by the people of God in Amos' time without considering our own time and our own place? Are we not the people whom God has chosen as His own through the work of Jesus Christ? Is that not a great privilege that we have in this world? Have we not enjoyed a rich and beautiful history? Sure, it has its stops and starts. It has its faults and its falls. But I would dare say that we have a rich and beautiful history being reformed people. Do you know that all over the world, people are rediscovering the riches of the reformed faith and the reformed teachings? Not because they have the title reformed, but because they're so richly biblical and because they do such a good job of comprehending the great plan and purpose of God from the very beginning of time until the very end. A plan and purpose of which we are a part. And how can we talk about the foremost riches in Israel, the kind of luxuries and blessings that they were enjoying without taking stock of what we have? We live in one of the richest countries in the whole world. And we live in one of the richest parts of the richest countries in the whole world. If we stop for a moment and take stock of it, even those of us who do not consider ourselves rich would have to, in light of 95% of the world, would have to call ourselves very rich and very blessed in our time. We, like the Israelites, like the Judahites of Amos' time, are incredibly privileged. But of course, having this special status, having a a great history, and having all these blessings is more than just a privilege. It's a calling. It's a life calling to be worked out in our daily lives and in our church. And it's one, as Amos says, that can be lost. It can be lost by the complacent and the self-secure. You see, Amos isn't delivering a pep talk here to the best team in the league, the team that has everything and is is taking it all the way to the championship. 
No, he's delivering a message of woe to the team that has all the potential, has all the talent, but yet they're floundering at the bottom of the league. They're a miserable waste of talent. They're a bunch of colossal underachievers. That's the Israel and Judah that Amos is addressing. You see, that's what is happening in verse 2 when he talks about Kalna and Hamoth and Gath. He says, go to Kalna, which was a city in the north. And he says, go to Hamath, another city in the north. And Gath, a city in the region of Philistia. And he says, are they not better than yours? Is their land larger than yours? Well, you see what he's doing here. The answer to the second question, is their land larger than yours, is no. No, their land was not larger than Israel's or Judah's. They were just cities, city-states, self-contained. They hadn't achieved a great empire like Israel and Judah had. And so then, going back, the answer to the first question, are they not better off than your kingdoms, would also have to be no. No. Israel and Judah are not better off than Gath of the Philistines, than Kalna, a relatively unknown city in the north. Was Israel not the people of God? Was Judah not the home of of Zion, the dwelling place of God? You see, the point is that Israel and Judah were privileged, and they should have been greater than these other nations, but they weren't. They had taken it all for granted. They thought that their special status and their special privilege was a laurel to be rested on rather than realizing that it was a calling to be worked out to the praise and glory of their almighty God in heaven. That brings us then to our second point, the great calling of the people of God. You see, Israel and Judah's privilege was never meant to stop there. They weren't just supposed to sit back and receive all these blessings from the hand of the Lord. They weren't just supposed to kick back and enjoy the life that God had given them, although, of course, it would be enjoyable. They didn't have heaven on earth, and they weren't supposed to. Rather, their great privilege was their great calling. They were called not only to be God's people in the world, but to be God's people in the world, to carry out their calling, to shine the light, of their Father in heaven, to work out His plan and purpose for the world. It's a difference between being passive and being active, between being complacent and having concern, between apathy and passion. Well, what was Israel's calling? Well, we can come up with a lot of different things. They were to be a light to the world. Isaiah says in chapter 60, they were to be a blessing to the nations. That was what the Lord had said to Abraham when he called him out of Ur. They were to be a witness and they were to speak the name of the Lord to the nations around them. They were to be a salt in the world. They were to be messengers of the messianic age, the the great age that God was going to bring about. They were to look ahead to that coming salvation of God. They were to be watchful and keep themselves pure for that day. They were to carry out the worship of the Almighty God like priests in the world. And they were to be busy preparing the way of the Lord, making straight paths for Him to come 
and bring the salvation that was in store for this world. In sum, they were to be active agents of God's plan and purpose in this world. They were to be active agents of God's plan and purpose in this world. But instead of of bringing near the day of the Lord, instead of planning for the day of the Lord, the fulfillment of His plan, we read in verse 3 that they, they put off the evil day. They put off the day of the Lord for the sake of their momentary pleasures. They're just like the guy who has doctor's orders to lose weight. He knows he's got an appointment next week, and the result isn't going to be good. It hasn't been going well for him. But as he stands in line at McDonald's, he decides to put off that day of reckoning for one more cheeseburger. He puts off that that day of reckoning for the sake of a momentary pleasure. They turned their great privilege into great waste. Waste. That's the picture of verses 4 through 6. Look at what they're doing. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. They're, they're lazy. They're just sitting around doing nothing. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. They, they eat the best meats, the best foods every day. They're, they're opulent. They're wasteful. They're sumptuous. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. They enjoyed the privileged life of a king, even a great king like David. And you drink wine by the bowlful. They were self-indulgent drunks who drank wine by the bottle, beer by the two-four. Wow. What a bunch of self, self-indulgent pigs. What a complete waste are these people in terms of God's calling to them in the world. They weren't doing anything. And again, we can hardly read about the Israelites in our text without thinking of our own situation. But now let me be clear. I simply don't see the kind of opulence and wastefulness that Amos is talking about here, about Israel and Judah in our times, in our church or churches. Most of us are busy in our work. We're, we're struggling to be good parents, be good children, to provide for our families, etc. We're not a bunch of self-indulgent pigs. But yet, at the same time, we have to be clear about another thing. That we're fooling ourselves if we think that there's no smugness, that there's no selfishness, or that there's no wastefulness in our time as well. Complacency? That's the spirit of our time. God has given us so much. Are we actively, passionately using our money, our time, our rich history for God's kingdom? Or are we more likely to spend our money on ourselves or our toys? Are we more likely to spend our time watching TV or on Facebook and remain completely clueless about what God is doing in this world and what His great plan actually is for this world? It's very important to be clear here. I don't mean to harp on the issue, but we need to see the problem because there are many things 
that are working so that we don't see the problem, the devil's wiles, the world's standards, and our own desires. Want to make this a monster blind spot in our life. But it is entirely possible to be a Christian, to go to church every Sunday, to work hard throughout the week, and amass a great amount of of wealth and possessions, to be busy all the time, and for your life to be a complete waste. It's possible. That's what Amos is talking about. Perhaps to get it from another angle, we can ask ourselves some questions. Do you think that Christianity is on the rise in our half of the world? Or is it on the decline? Well, I think that there's evidence to suggest that the gospel is on the decline. Does that concern us? Do you think that God's name and glory is growing here in Canada? Or not? Well, Seems more like not. What about in Langley, B.C.? Is our city growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it continuing to just float along with no idea about Him? What about in our church? Is there a movement, is there a tendency towards greater passivity or towards greater activity? Is there a greater concern for the plan and purpose of God in this world and of actively carrying that out? Or are we more concerned about our own life? Are we more concerned about our pleasures and our toys and our wants and desires? How about in our own lives? Are are we working out God's calling in our lives, in all areas of our lives, our relationships, our family, our friends, our neighbors? Our community? Or are the cares of this world and the pursuits of recreation and luxury taking up all our time? Well, we come to the great response. What will be the great response of the people of God? You see, for the people of Israel and Judah, living as they were, having neglected God's calling as they had, the clear result of their actions was punishment. That's precisely what this passage is. It's a woe. It's a pronouncement of a covenant curse. You see, the calling, the privilege, and the calling that Israel had was a direct result of the covenant that God had made with him. God had sovereignly and graciously called them to be his own. He had made them his own people, and he had formalized that in the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. If the people lived in this relationship with God and worked out their calling, they would be blessed. But if they failed to, they failed to uphold the name of the Lord for His greater worship and honor, then they would be punished. That was the way the covenant worked. And so a woe was the statement of this punishment, of this curse. And they come up all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 5 verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. Habakkuk 2, verse 6, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Or we read it in Luke 6 as well, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that's how their fathers treated the false prophet. 
verse 7 of our text, is driving this covenant curse home. And as Amos often does, he does it ironically. Remember before he had said, you prominent men of the foremost nation. And then in verse 7 he says, you're going to be the first to go into exile. You're going to be the first, the greatest, the first people in this world are going to be the first people to be sent into exile, removed from the promised land, and removed from the covenant blessings of God. That's what's going on. That's what this text is all about. But yet we have to realize, we have to remember that God is the God who does not desire the death of any man. Think of Ezekiel 18. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And so He doesn't desire the destruction of His people. Rather, He wants them to turn from their evil ways. He wants to take them away from that path of destruction to a way of life. And He doesn't desire that we would follow along the way of destruction. That we would continue to live in our own selfish ways. But that we would turn back to Him. So what's the answer? What is Amos really driving with this pronouncement? It's repentance. Repentance. It must be repentance. Turning away from their selfish, self-serving pursuits and turning to God. Turning away from their unrighteousness and turning to the righteousness of God. Look at verse 6b, the second half of verse 6. You do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Literally what it says there is, you don't get sick over the ruin of Joseph. You weren't sickened by the terrible state of the people of God in your time. Well, when we consider it doesn't, the lack of passion for God's glory in our world? Doesn't the lack of desire to see the gospel spread? Doesn't the lack of love for God's word? The lack of concern for the poor and the oppressed? Doesn't that make you sick? Do you grieve over it? Doesn't it make you sick when you realize that you're maybe more a part of the problem than you are a part of the solution? What's the answer? It's repentance. Repentance. Turning from our selfish pursuits, from our cold indifference to this world, from our cold indifference to our Almighty God in heaven, turning from our gratuitous luxuries, and turning to Jesus Christ. Turning to Him. You see, the Israelites had lost sight of God's greater plan and purpose of this world. That greater plan and purpose that reached its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so only in looking at Him can we understand our calling and our place and begin to work that out. When you, when you turn and you look at Him, at who He is, at, at what He has done for this world and what He is continuing to do as He sits at the right hand of God in heaven, How can we not be ashamed of our own complacency? Of our own inaction, of our own wastefulness? Was it not our sin that held him there? 
When we look at Him, how can we not see that He was perfectly active in working at our salvation and that He was perfectly passionate for God's plan and purpose in this world? So passionate and so active that He went all the way to the cross and accomplished it for us there. When we look at Him, how can our hearts not be warmed with love with passion, with activity, and a desire to give up all things for the sake of His glory and honor, the Lord who has given His life for us. How can we not be passionate for His plan? How can we not desire to see His purpose worked out, the salvation of His people, the spreading of His glorious gospel? You see, the opposite of a woe is blessing. That's why the Lord Jesus, when He spoke woe to the rich, to the those who are filled in this world, He also speaks a word of blessing to the poor, to those who hunger, to those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when you don't find your life in the pursuit of your own pleasures, but when you find your life in the pursuit of His pleasure, of His glory, of His honor. Brothers and sisters, it's not true that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good people do nothing. Because all that was necessary for the triumph of good is that one man did everything. Find your life in Him. Repent when your life is not in Him. Live your life in pursuit of His great plan, of His great purpose, of His pleasure, and you will be blessed. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.